Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This week on Twip, shooting bison in Yellowstone and manual mode is for real photographers. Also, ShootQ.com CEO Andrew Neeson talks about taking your life back. All that and much more coming up next on episode number 88 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. Today on the show, we've got a crack team of uh, folks to talk about photography with. Uh, Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm very good. Tired from from flying all over the world. Uh, yeah, we want to hear about that. Yeah, Yellowstone. And Aaron Mailer is also on the line. Hey, Aaron. Hello, hello. Hey, so yeah, um, one thing before we jump into the to the show, one thing about the the trip, the Yellowstone trip that I just got back off of, it was this was the scariest time that I can recall, <laughs> except for after nine eleven, that I've had being in airports and flying around because of all the swine flu stuff. And people, really? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't nervous, but I was looking at people with masks on and. You know, <laughs> putting, no, you're a putting, putting their hand sanitizer on every five seconds. I'm like, really? <laughs> oh, man. So, and then you get on the plane, and there's you know a guy behind you hacking. <laughs> you know, it could oh, nice. just, could just be allergies, but still, you're like, oh, really? Oh, <laughs> so not not exciting. Eh, all overblown. Sixty five thousand people died from the regular flu last year. Sixty five thousand. Yes, from the regular flu. Oh, and how, how many have died from swine flu? I don't know. I don't Two? Know. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. I think those are U.S. numbers, but yeah. Well, considering that this isn't this week in swine flu, I guess we should continue <laughs> with, <laughs> with the news. So, you know, just continuing on this, the, t- the top of the news this week, um, not to be you know, all selfish and all about me, is the trip to uh, Yellowstone National Park that I just got off of with uh, Scott Bourne and Steve Simon who is in the air as we record this on his way back from Yellowstone National Park. But That sounds like it was maybe a little bit of fun. It was loads of fun. I mean, <laughs> it was, you know, it it was an interesting experience because it's a small group of people. You know, it was one instructor to one student and we would just break out. We you would meet in the morning at 6 a.m. Mountain Time. Um, <laughs> so we would meet, meet in the morning and then head out to different parts of the park, whether it be the geysers or, you know, just wherever, and and shoot it for half the day, meet for lunch, and do the classroom session in the afternoon, um, dinner, and then head out again. Um, if the, you know, if weather conditions permitted, we'd go out again and get some, some light fading shots like the sunsets or whatever you know and the animals were just insane i mean not insane as in rat and you know rabid but they were <laughs> they were there was an insane amount of them out there they were all over the place in fact we were just leaving the hotel to get to the front gate of yellowstone to enter the park to go shoot there were bison standing at a gas pump <laughs> just standing <laughs> Filling up, waiting for something. I, I don't know. I mean, they just stand. There's no nothing for them to eat there. They're just like just two of them, just standing there, like oh, hum, you know, this gigantic, you know, beast at a gas pump. So of course, the, uh, these bison are probably the most photographed animals on the planet because car full of people with four hundred and six hundred millimeter lens aimed aimed at them. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was cool. And 
entering into the park. You know, I was with one of the students, uh, Brian. We we entered into the park, and I'd say less than half a mile into the park, we were having a conversation. We're like, you know what? The what's the holy grail of Yellowstone? You know, everybody wants to see wolves here because they're the most elusive. You can't catch them anywhere. You know, and they're they're smarter than humans. Well, you know, in in their environment, whatever. And uh, so we're we're driving. He's like, stop the car. <laughs> so I stopped the car, two lane road, of course. I stopped the car, and there's a wolf right there on the hill next to the road, looking at us. Literally, I don't know, 200 feet, maybe less, away from us. And Brian had this gigantic, uh, what was it? This massive bazooka firing 600 millimeter cannon lens, and he pulled that thing out and got this amazing shot of the wolf. And then. Then, you know, I'm driving and I had, all I had was my 7200, so I got some shots of him in his environment, but he got like the wolf's retina kind of thing. <laughs> and then we look behind us and there's another wolf, a dark, like a black colored wolf. I guess they were traveling together, of course, but he's coming up behind us, crossing the road. And we got him too. So we saw two wolves upon entering the park. And then so it, got, just, it just went done. from there. <laughs> Turn around. We, we've succeeded. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it was. We're like, we're done. We can just go home now. We got the shot. <laughs> so what so was most? Like, of, I was gonna say, is most of the photography uh, that you were getting? I mean, was it a mix of wildlife and big scenic kind of stuff, or what did you find yourself shooting mostly? Yeah, totally. It was it was a mix. Well, we found ourselves shooting whatever we came upon. So you could just literally Yellowstone. You could just drive, and oh look, a mountain that's that's bubbling up with sulfuric acid. Maybe we should get a shot of that. <laughs> You know, so you just pull over and and spend like half an hour or whatever shooting that. And then you get back in the car and drive a little. And oh, look, a pack of bison standing there with a baby. Hmm, I'll shoot that, you know. And you keep going and look, more stuff. It just keeps going like that. And then when you you get to, you drive a little ways into the park. The way we were doing it, we had a deadline to get back to uh, the place we were eating uh, lunch at was by noon so we'd go as far as we could into the park and then turn around and come back at the halfway point so we could make it back in time Mm. but when you come back all the stuff that you shot has changed because the light you know at yellowstone is is beautiful and everything changes every second so you're going back you're like was that there when we came (laughs) we were coming it's just more stuff to shoot it's like a photographer's a nature photographer's paradise up there you could just spend months and months and months just up there shooting what is the 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 after shooting time like as a group i mean going through photos i mean do you if you're all together and and shooting a lot of the same things you know in a group i mean how much variation were you finding just aside from lens differences and all how much variation were you finding in what each person's eye saw or captured well we don't know yet so we on this particular workshop we didn't have the we didn't have time to do the critiquing piece of it oh, so okay. we're going to do that after the fact online um, cuz we want to spend as much time as possible out there shooting and up at five o'clock to have breakfast at 6 a.m. to shoot half the day. You know, it's a long day for people to be sitting at 8 p.m. reviewing and then up again at 6 a.m. for the next day. So uh, we're going to review everything, the instructors and the students. We're going to do everything online and post it. And Scott will have everything posted on, uh, I'm sure, the uh, the Aperture Nature Photography Workshop blog slash site. So, yeah, it was really, it was a really, really cool adventure. It was really, I think the biggest piece of it Aside from the grandeur of nature and the excitement of seeing wild animals that could any moment come charging at you and eat you, was uh, just working with some amazing photographers. You know, not notwithstanding the instructors like Steve Simon and Scott Bourne, 
you know, and it was the students there were just top notch. I mean, each of these people brought their own special discipline of photography. Like, like I was saying, one of the guys I was with, Brian, uh, his thing was avian photography, photography. So, you know, shooting birds. And of course there's who knows how many species of birds at Yellowstone. So he spent a lot of time, uh, just with that gigantic lens camped out shooting these birds. And then, you know, he showed us some of the things that he had shot later and just these amazing photos of these, you know, every little detail of the wing and colors and it's just beautiful stuff. So something, if you're, if you're into nature, it's just something for everybody up there. Is the park very crowded this time of year or was it? No, there there was no one there. In fact, when we got to the hotel, uh, we stayed at the best Western up there and, we when we arrived, we were the only guests in the hotel. Nice. Wow. So there was no one there. There were no lines. There were no like, you know, crowds of people. Look, a, a deer, you know, and fifteen hundred lenses pointed at one deer. There was no one. <laughs> we had the park essentially to ourselves. So, so that season or economy and swine flu and all mixed together or what? I I would say mainly season because okay. none, I, I took four planes to get at, get there and back total and. Each of my planes was full, so there was I, don't, I didn't see any evidence of people not flying because of swine flu. Okay, but um, I saw evidence of people being hypochondriacs because of swine flu, <laughs> but they were still flying. <laughs> so, so, so what's we were, the uh, what, what's the shot you didn't get? What's the shot that you saw and weren't able to get? Um, oh, when I travel, I've always got these these things where you know, and usually it's when I'm driving in a car. And uh, I'll pass something like, oh, my God, you know, that, that's a great photo. But, you know, whatever situation, I can't turn around or by the time I get there, whatever I saw was gone or something. And Yeah, that my elusive shot I missed, I think, because I haven't gone through all my stuff a- exactly yet. But um, there were, we were driving and there was this pack of bison that were sitting very close to the road, you know, close enough so that with my 200 millimeter lens racked to 200, I could full fill the frame with one of them, you know, like fill it, you know? Yep. Uh, so we were driving and we see them, we'd shot bison before. So we're like, Oh yeah, whatever. Uh, so we, we pulled over anyway, just to get a couple shots. Cause two of them were looking aggressive and they started doing the headbutting thing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know how they raise up and then just sort of yeah. run at each other. Well, they, well, they weren't raising up, but they were just sort of running towards each other and hitting their heads together in the middle. And it looked like a, an icon or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I whipped my head, my 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 uh, D three with the seventy two hundred on lens on it. I pulled it out and I'm firing away because it's going to be gone in two seconds. And I noticed that I had the uh, – it was on aperture priority, and I had it set so that uh, it was picking too long of a shutter speed. So mm. I got – I don't think I got the shot on that one. So Because <laughs> I, 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 I wasn't ready, you know? I wasn't right. ready. So that's I think that's going to be my missed shot, though I may be able to do something creative with it and make some sort right. of art, but <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a National Geographic shot. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a good point. We never hear situations where, you know, something fast can happen. I mean, I've got a you know a preset on my on mine. This is just sort of my fast setting, but I'll admit there's still times where you pull it out and you don't even think to turn the dial over to you know your the, the right you know preset for what you want. Yeah, and and thank God for Steve Simon because you know after I told Steve that story. He was like, "Oh, did you know that the Nikon had these these modes on it where you could quickly switch it, basically presets where you can switch it to certain configurations depending on what you're shooting. For example, you could have a wedding 
setting. You could have uh-huh. a just quick photo walking setting that's just very general. You could have a portrait setting, and it will set color balance. Uh, you could tell it what lens that you prefer. Not that it's going to put the lens on there for you, but you could generally tell it what you're going to be using. You could put the uh, f-stop shutter speed combination, all that stuff into or and on and on into one quick of the press button so that you could quickly jump into these different modes. So and if I had that configured for, okay, I need something that's going to pick a relatively fast shutter speed and blah, 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 I could have, I could have had that ready and just hit that and started shooting and not worried about it. But Right. As yeah, that's, that's kind of... Yeah, I was going to say... Well, go ahead, Aaron. This, the Canon I was going to say, as a Canon owner, how, how does that mesh with the physical you know, knobs and so on in the camera? I mean, if, can your preset... You know, established settings that don't correlate properly with you know the physical settings of aperture priority mode and so on on the camera, or are those soft functions on the Nikon bodies anyway? <clears throat> I think those are soft functions, uh, soft functions on the body anyway. So okay, when right. you they're not the, rotators like on the Canon. No, no, no. Well, you've got the on the Nikon, you've got front and rear rotators, and then on the back, you've got the sort of multi-function uh, button. Mm-hmm. You know, up, down, left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, you know, to get to it, you just basically hit a button, like the menu button on the back, scroll down to whatever preset you want and hit it. And the camera's ready to shoot. Interesting. Which is, which is yeah. you know, I, I, I just wondered if, if those settings establish like an aperture priority kind of setting, but the rotator knob is manual mode on your camera. I'm just wondering what can be overridden and what can't be. Yeah. My understanding, and I, I'm not in the weeds too deep on it. Like Steve is Steve. We can talk about it when Steve's on the show, but <laughs> it, uh, it, Everything on these bodies, at least the Nikon uh, D700 and the D3, those are the ones I'm familiar with, pretty uh-huh. much everything is configurable. In fact, you can, cool. you can configure it to act pretty much like a Canon, you know, uh-huh. in terms of when you rotate a dial, it's increasing or decreasing exposure. Uh, you know, for exposure compensation, you can say, well, when I rotate right, I want it to increase not instead of decrease, which is which is the default on Nikon and the reverse right. is the default on Canon. So mm-hmm. you can, you know, if you're coming from Canon to Nikon, uh, you can, you know, make the camera so that it's more familiar to you. Sure. Smooth transition. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. So all in all, good trip. Learned a lot about photography, learned a lot about people, learned a lot more about Scott Bourne. Scott, <laughs> <laughs> spent a lot of time with Scott Bourne. Scott's, you know, he's a, he's the master showman and he was, uh, he was able to keep this thing marching along really well and, uh, kept everybody entertained, of course. And uh, at the end, you know, we did a quick poll uh, of the students of what they thought about the workshop and, you know, uh, did they have a good time and did they learn anything? And the overwhelming consensus was that they they uh, were pretty much blown away. So I think he can consider this workshop a success. Wow, that's good. Well, it's going to be fun getting uh, getting Steve's take on it, The uh, you know, his, his sense of how it went, too. We'll have to do the same grilling of him yeah totally and i'll get some images up uh probably today this is my first day first morning back since being in the park so i'm gonna go through my stuff and hopefully i got something worthy of putting up online and i'll post it and tweet out tweet out that it's available well twip twip log is in need of images and stories fred so all right well i've got lots of both of those now So uh, hopefully they mesh together because I'll give this grandiose story about some elk and have a blurry photo of it. So <laughs> it was beautiful. It was having a baby right in front of me, and there's nothing. So. What did you What did you take? What What lenses did you take? I took my 14 to 24 
these are an icon, of course. 14 to 24, my 24 to 70, and my 70 to 200. So I had a 14 to 200 range available right. to me, and uh, which was fine. I ended up using the mostly the 14 to 24 for the vistas but i would switch over to the 24 to 70 because it had less distortion of course and mm -hmm. then uh the my walk around lens at least in that park was the 70 to 200 just in case you know cause to uh pull in whatever was happening on the side of the road right got it how much how much were, were you doing much hiking or was it all pretty much driving and a little bit of hiking around the area it was it was mostly driving, you know, because mm -hmm. because it's in that park they caution you not to veer too far off the uh, the the paved right. black substance, <laughs> especially in where the geysers are, because you, there could be a river of sulfuric acid running underneath you <laughs> that you can yeah. fall through and you know try to step away and you have no thighs. So it's it's uh, that's, that's it's, incentive. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty. We we were very careful about every place we stepped not so much to for self-preservation but you know there was of course some of that but you don't want to disturb anything it's just you know it's a beautiful place there yeah so yeah we were just mainly driving and on the road it's a two-lane road you know two-way um at the appropriate places most of the appropriate places they had turnouts where you could turn out and hop out of the car and maybe walk a couple feet or 100 feet into the wilderness or whatever and take some shots and then return to the car and keep going so really cool really cool stuff some some of the photographers brought uh tripods of course and they were doing long exposures of the river and you know it's just you know all this all kinds of stuff wow so, sounds good now you want to go don't you ron brinkman i've always wanted to go but uh, <laughs> i want to go more i guess <laughs> yeah it, just four days it's uh it's sort of life-changing you know I, yeah i have new respect for nature photographers because it's it's not as easy as it looks you know to go out there and, and get these animals and these animals were pretty much posing for us too you mm -hmm. know they were they were right there they didn't care you know they're like whatever another human you know and there's packs of them everywhere you go so if you want shots of elk bison deer whatever you know, wolves you know if you can find them you know that's the place to go wow very cool so moving on in the news away from the the nature stuff scientists have built the world's fastest camera now what what is aaron what does the world's fastest camera mean well um how about shoots uh Half a billionth of a second long exposures, six million images <laughs> a second continuously. So uh, yeah, it's pretty fast. <laughs> and and the, I uh, and I need that because well, it's for scientific use for you yeah. know obviously capturing events that are just a you know tiny 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 fraction of a second. And apparently the it's it's not that it's necessarily the first camera to shoot close to this speed or around this speed, but. Um, past cameras could do this type of thing but had like about an eight shot maximum which meant you had to have a means of correlating the event with the timing of the camera uh, and this however being able to do such continuous uh, you know uh, photography or store six million images um, there's less of that concern at this point I mean they can essentially start it have the event happen and know that they've captured it within that massive space of one second you know that, that it was covering so yeah sounds like a pretty massive advance for science in that regard yeah and, yeah. and it's basically flash photography right because it's uh, the, the way they can get this is with a laser pulse to kind of uh, get the exposure so it's sort of like flash photography I think yeah. yeah, the super continuum laser pulses, as they call them. Mm -hmm. Looks fascinating. Now, do you, in your personal photography life, Aaron, do you see any use for this? <laughs> um, 
No, not really. <laughs> not off the top of my head. I don't think head. this is going to show up in a cannon body anytime soon. No, the closest I've come with this is um, I, I've helped our engineering department here at the college um, do some high-speed photography of um, of uh, smoke tests uh, that they do in a small air tunnel or wind tunnel that we have for um, airfoil tests on a wing for some research work. And uh, I was doing it with you know just high-speed, you know, normal. Uh, photography and then had advised them along the way and then this isn't you know a top dollar camera or anything but I advised them along the way to buy that uh, the canon fx something or other i can't think of the model number the one that'll do up to 1200 frames a second granted the resolution gets pretty low when you do that but the uh the 600 frame a second and so on capabilities it had uh maintain adequate re resolution for their needs so it's really helped them a lot with uh with slowing down the smoke curve over the wing and, and analyzing it and being able to do better diagramming and so on yeah, so that's about the closest I've come to it personally. There's so much stuff you can do with this. With it, it just boggles of all the things that you need to try in photography. You know, like, hmm, what about some super high speed HDR photography? You know, <laughs> you right, can, yep. yeah, you can you can start mixing and matching matching these different techniques just in an infinite number of ways to to pull out your own signature technique, if you will. So, mm -hmm. really cool stuff. I've got some videos I did with that, Cassio. I'll, I'll tie to the blog at some point soon. Um, I was testing the camera for them after they first got it and did have a lot of fun doing things like uh, smashing Christmas balls on the front porch and oh, yeah. things like that. I mean, it, it's something that just to your eye is instantaneous is, you know, a 30-second long sequence on this camera and watching glass fly off into the yard, you yeah. know, over 10 seconds and so on. It's pretty fascinating. So speaking, speaking of HDR, Ron, is there a way to uh, do HDR video? We not, not. I mean, not in the same way you do it on your with your still camera, taking multiple exposures. Um, you know, the the problem is, it, it only works on a still camera because you're taking a picture of something that's not moving. Mm -hmm. So taking video of something that's not moving isn't generally that exciting. You'd have to have three. <laughs> you'd have to have three perfectly aligned cameras shooting the same thing, and yeah, then you could potentially mess do them together, right? Yeah, you could potentially do something with a beam splitter and. Uh, uh, you know, which decreases your exposure. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where so many rules change with video because you, if you're trying to shoot at 30 frames a second, obviously, then you know, one thirtieth one thirtieth of a second is the maximum you can capture because you got to go on to the next frame. So, it's a different kind of beast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's just it's still boggles. You know, I'm still trying to. All these years, I've been shooting <clears throat> uh, photography since 1989. I've been doing photography for over 20 years now, and it uh, it, there's, it still boggles all the different things that you can try, and they keep increasing every day as all these different techniques yeah, and it's show ju up. It's just not slowing down. In fact, it's increasing. I think you know, it, there's stuff that we haven't even thought of yet that is just going to be so radically different in even five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yep. over that 20 years, though, Fred, how how where have the advancements taken place the most? I mean, do you feel a steady progression over 20 years, or do you feel 15 years of you know, same old, same old, and five years of well, massive? From changes, from or? my standpoint, it's it hasn't been. You know, I'm not Scott Bourne, so my my upgrades don't happen when when manufacturers want them to. <laughs> so <laughs> so mine have been like I would I, I bought a. Well, my first digital camera was a Nikon or a, a Canon 10D, which I still have. It's modified for infrared now. Um, mm -hmm. So that was my first digital camera, and I was that was me coming off of Nikon. So I was Nikon originally in the Air Force, and and before that, it was all Nikon, Nikon, Nikon. 
then when I decided, okay, digital is at the point now where I think I can start shooting digital and that the 10D was the leader of the pack. And uh-huh. Nikon, when I went to the store in Palo Alto to, to talk to them about what I needed to do to upgrade my Nikon system to digital, they essentially told me, well, none of your stuff is going to work. You need to buy new stuff, new speed lights, new lenses, uh, you know. So I said, well, if I'm going to buy new stuff, I might as well buy the leader. <laughs> and, and the leader at the time was Canon with that 10D. So I purchased the 10D and my lenses and flash and off I went. But my, to answer your question, my progression has been, uh, you know, I went to the, from a Nikon F4 film body to a 10D uh, digital body. And I stayed with that 10D forever. And then I jumped from the 10D when funds allowed to my current Nikon system, which is um, was initially a D3, and then I added the D700 to it. So I have a big gap of time <laughs> in there where <laughs> several bodies have been introduced. So progression-wise, I don't you know I don't have an accurate timeline of oh in 19 or in 2002 this was the the, the big change. You know I don't have that progression as you do with software because. With right, Photoshop, sure. you could say, oh, in Photoshop 2, they didn't have layers. And then in Photoshop 3, they added layers, and we could do this and this and this. And then they added adjustment layers, you know. So it's a different kind of progression. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I'm, I think I'm, you know, you can sort of make the case that, yeah, every every year the manufacturers are going to come out with something new. But for me, it sort of felt like about every three years do the changes get to be enough that it's time to go ahead and, and make a new jump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's kind of what I've seen when I was following it. And as I've been buying it, is, is you know, it's you usually skip a generation of changes just because it is so uh, incremental in most cases. And, you know, so, and then, and then when, you, when the new one does come out, you know, you've skipped a generation. You've got quite a few changes that are going on. So, yeah. Like like Max, for example, <clears throat> I'd say upgrading my my hardware system seems much more compelling than upgrading my camera system. And it sounds mm-hmm. weird for a photographer to say, but like with my D3 and the D700, just from this conversation that we're having today, you know, it's clear that I'm only scratching the surface of the stuff that's in there that I need to know about these current bodies. So why, mm-hmm. why would I be considering a D3X or something like that when it's going to have an incremental feature set over what I what I have now? And I'm not, you know, some photographer that is like, oh, I'm pushing the edge on this and I must have this latest body. I'm a normal photography like photographer like most of our audience. And the, the body that I have, I haven't maximized it. So why should I go buy more in, until I can at least say that I'm hitting some sort of wall with my current system? Right. You know, you, you use the term camera system, and I think to a certain extent, upgrading your computer or your software is upgrading your camera system, right? It's no longer... Yeah, it, it, you really have to consider the entire workflow, and you can do so much as a post-processing uh, operation on these images that, yeah, you can kind of upgrade software at one point and hardware at another point, and you know, altogether, you're constantly upgrading. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You could you could get stuck in that upgrade trap, just like any other trap. You know, on on the 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 trip that I just came off of, we had a great discussion one evening about photographic technique of course you know the whole workshop was about that but this one was specifically about manual shooting in manual mode versus shooting in uh one of the program modes like aperture priority shutter priority or whatever you know whatever your 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 taste uh, drives you to shoot in and some people think that you know not not anyone at the at the workshop but some people think that if you don't shoot in manual mode you're not a real photographer <laughs> which I disagree with vehemently. 
uh, my standpoint, and I'm glad it was sort of verified by Joe McNally, is that because who shoots <laughs> to make the same reference? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, who shoots an aperture <laughs> priority book. most of the time? Uh, mm-hmm. Is that these cameras are essentially you're carrying around a supercomputer on your shoulder that these camera manufacturers and very smart people in lab coats and gigantic heads have put together all this technology to help you be more creative. It's not to take the creativity away from you. It's to help you not think about other stuff. So if I if I want to focus on you know, making the background out of focus, I'm avoiding saying the B word, uh, making the background out of focus, uh, then I can stay in aperture priority and use that as my primary control for the camera. I don't have to think about my f-stop shutter speed ISO all the time now with these things. So I think... Like going down the path of saying that uh, I have to be doing a certain thing or else I'm not a real photographer is gone. You know, the, the yep. fact that in the past they had to do that because they had to, you know, sprinkle in the, the flash powder and then set their <laughs> set the camera up and light it and poof. And hopefully they got an image. Those days are gone. You know, we are we are in the living in the future and we should maximize the technology that we have to help us ec- get the vision of image that we want. I'd say it's a um, hot shoe diaries, Joe McNally, page eight, the first couple paragraphs. He he cites all that exactly. Ninety percent of his time in aperture priority mode, uh, only occasionally in manual exposure when he absolutely knows. And uh, a good bit of discussion here too about you know people that say don't trust the camera or don't trust the meter. You know he makes a reference to a Ferrari versus driving it to church like little old lady. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. You know, and it's interesting. You know, a- another revelation that that book Joe's Hachu Diaries book made for me was the the advances in strobe technology with the CLS system that we've talked about on the show before. Before, mm-hmm. literally, before reading that book, even though I had the gear to do it, I was off-camera stuff was always manual. I was like, okay, I'm in the studio now. So here's a PC cord that's linking this, it's triggering the flash. I would meter to get my f-stop shutter speed, all this stuff. When, again, in my flash alone is a supercomputer that's <laughs> doing all this stuff <laughs> to talk to the other supercomputer. So I'm, I was essentially turning off, you know, the, my... my uh, 2010 computer hal was turning hal off to use a calculator (laughs) so it's it's uh it's weird and when you when you embrace the time that you're living in you know we're in 2009 camera technology has advanced to a crazy place when you embrace the fact that you're here and stop living in the past of okay i'm reading this this photography book from 1979 and this they say shut the f-stop to this and the shutter speed to this and turn them at this angle and make them smile you know when you get past that and embrace what what it is you can do with today's technology then the sky's the limit the one thing I would add to that, I, I think the value is understanding the fundamentals. I mean, knowing what all that means. I mean, interpreting that 1970s manual and knowing the fundamentals of photography. And and then letting the camera do a lot of the work if necessary. But if you're letting the camera do the work within the framework of understanding what it is that the camera is doing so that you can override and can control and can be creative with it, I think that's when you really hit your, you know, really hit the ground running with digital photography. Yeah, yeah. So you use your tools, I guess, is the the takeaway mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. Don't don't keep don't autopilot. Don't let it think for you yeah. entirely. Understand it, but work with it. I guess is what it comes down to. Yep. So also in the news today is uh, an update to the EOS 5D Mark II, uh, a firmware update for Pocket Wizard, their new Mini TT1 and Flex TT5 
systems. Now, you you guys have heard about this. I've I'm I'm sort of waiting on the Nikon version. I know they have a, they released a Canon version initially, and there've been mixed reports about performance of this device. And essentially, this it sounds like people are. It works in certain configurations, or at least previous to this firmware update, it would work in previous in in some some configuration uh, body flash configs, but not in others. Are you guys familiar with that? Those issues? A little bit. Yep. I've I've seen some discussion of it. There have been uh, some definite questioning of uh, of behavior and performance, and and I think this uh, firmware update is going to tackle a couple of those things. Hey, this um, is this I, is a firmware update to the flash, not to the five D, correct? No. Right. Is it, no, this is, is it to for the, the pocket wizards. No, this is a firmware update for the pocket wizards themselves. Which oh, attached- okay. Yeah. I was thinking it was it was in the camera body. Okay, so it's for the yeah. it's a pocket wizard uh, firmware update for their devices. Okay. Correct yeah. for yeah. the interfacing between the, the the two units and the the flash itself. Okay. So any any reports yet on if that's if that firmware update is addressing the concerns of the people that were less than satisfied? Well, I think it depends on the situation. I mean, I haven't heard I haven't heard what these firmware updates do with these issues uh, directly, but I do know there have been a lot of discussions about the fact that uh, Canon's 580EX2 flash has kind of a, a, a cloud of noise around it, EF noise to some extent, which has caused some serious trouble, um, particularly on range and some to some extent reliability with talking to it, which is probably less Pocket Wizards issue than than Canon's, but I mean the products are meant to be paired together, so yeah. Um, We'll we'll put some stuff on the blog too. There was a, a group that released a series of videos recently where they did some insanely extensive testing uh, and demonstration of of the behavior and comparing it to some other products. And you know, I haven't heard the be all end all uh, take on on their testing whether people had some you know questions about how they did it. But within the scope of their video, it was uh, it was pretty interesting to watch, pretty compelling. So I'm I'm curious to see how things get worked out with with changes to the product over time. Yeah. So overall, what do you guys think of the the idea of RF uh, technology for syncing flashes and sending TTL information over the air? I think it's ideal, personally, from having dealt with situations with uh, with line of sight that didn't work so terribly well. Yeah, I think I mean, line of sight's kind of crazy, but you know, obviously, you got to get the you got to get the radio stuff worked out so that there isn't interference. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, there's so many situations where there, I mean, I can't. I don't get Wi-Fi in my house if the microwave is running, so I know that it's not an easy thing to solve sometimes. But mm-hmm. certainly not. Uh, line of sight can be a real pain outdoors, especially. Um, I have a lot less trouble with it indoors, which is, of course, where I need it most of the time anyway. Um, so, and you would be amazed sometimes at how much um, it doesn't even have to be line of sight. How much uh, infrared will bounce off of all kinds of surfaces and you yeah. can still get there. So it's pretty remarkable, but it's going to fail you when you need it most, and and that's. You know, you've missed it at that point. So RF does stand to be pretty fantastic if it's worked out well. Yeah, I wonder. And, uh, I wonder if the the Pocket Wizard Mini TT1 and Flex TT5 that sender receiver technology, um, it, if Nikon and Canon with their speed lights aren't thinking, hey, I'm just going to incorporate that into the the device itself. You know, because that's where I'd want it. You know, I'd, why not just have it? just work automatically just like it seems like if they were able to incorporate or even license pocket wizard technology to put it in the flash itself and i don't have to do anything else learn anything beyond what i'm learning now i agree this is crazy to me that that these manufacturers haven't just stepped up the plate put a transmitter inside of the uh inside of the camera body and you know and receivers inside of the flash units because this technology is well understood it's not that expensive if you're building it into an existing device 
and it's just it's it's amazing to me that somebody hasn't really do that yeah yeah it seems like it, it, it seems like a, a logical evolution yeah, yeah it's a no-brainer have, have you guys ever seen the microsync digital uh wireless triggers no what is that I've heard of them. I haven't worked. Yeah, with them. I, I don't. I, actually, this is. Uh, let, me, let me toss this out to the listeners. Then, uh, if anybody wants to get onto the blog, triplog.com, and uh, toss us some comments on these, because I've been looking at. I'm just reading about them online. They're little tiny uh, sync uh, sync system that uh, you know it's got a little uh, attachment under the camera, obviously, and fires the strobes. But um, just curious if anybody has experience if they're effective or not. Yeah, put it out there. Let's let's see if the the Twip Army uh, has any experience with that. Yep. The videos I was referring to earlier are the the Flex TT5 Mini TT1 versus the Radio Popper PX, which was another existing product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Good. We'll post that to the blog and put it in the show notes as well. Cool. Yeah. Well, lots of lots of room to grow for these the folks that are that are making the add-ons, like the Pocket Wizard folks and Nikon, Canon, whoever else is making Flash. So. You know what I want? Here's here's all I want, people. <laughs> here comes. Here we go. All right, we need some dramatic music. A bed of dramatic music right here. All all Ron wants. All I want is that little pop up flash that I have in my 40D, or you know, you've even got in your in your D700 to just have it be detachable, so that you can just kind of pull it out with a little battery in there and uh, and hold off the side with a radio uh, you know radio signal to trigger it. Like sort of little, all that terrible-looking, you know, straight-on flash look, and uh, it doesn't seem like it'd be that tough to do. Like, it. like a little shuttlecraft flying off of the USS Enterprise, right? Uh, exactly. Release, <laughs> release the saucer. <laughs> there you go. It release the saucer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Prepare to disconnect the saucer section. <laughs> yep. It should float within a ten or twenty-foot radius of you all on its own. Yep. Go. That would be wonderful. Cool. All right, one, one last thing in the news I wanted to chat about is uh, Noise Ninja. And I'm sure we're all familiar with Noise Ninja. If folks in the audience aren't familiar with it, we'll put a link to it in the show, no- show notes. But it's a, it's a piece of software that essentially is brilliant at removing repeating patterns of noise that appears in your photograph, uh, usually more apparent at high ISO settings to give you the appearance of uh, that your camera wasn't really at that high of an ISO. But it's uh, it's a great piece of software that is a it's a standalone app. It's also a Photoshop plugin, which you can I think you can also invoke it. You can invoke the standalone app from Lightroom or uh, Aperture as well. And I think they might have a plugin for Aperture. I'm not sure though. Uh, but uh, they've they've added a feature to the standalone version called uh, Sidekick Mode, which uh, Aaron, you want to talk about what that does a little bit? Um, it's essentially a um, allows other applications like Lightroom, Photo Mechanic, and all to fully automate the noise uh, removal process. It's kind of a batch process, essentially, mm. for cycling your images through, applying everything, and bringing it back in, at least so far as I understand. So in, in previous editions, it, it was one at a time. So you'd go yep. in, bring your image, profile it, remove the noise, get it to where you wanted, and then it's back, you're done. But now you mm-hmm. can do that to, say, 150 images and keep going. Right, your outside apps can essentially send these in for fully automatic processing. Very so, cool. Awesome. Yeah. And that's it for the news. How about uh, we move on to the picks of the week? Ron Brinkman, what's your pick? So this is a website that somebody on Twitter, Michael Leonard, sent to me. Uh, Smashing Magazine, which I guess is just generally a, a website that has a lot of interesting stuff, but specifically sent me a link to an article they did of 50 Incredible Photography Techniques and Tutorials. Uh, 
And I just wanted to call it out because I was thumbing through it and there's some really nice stuff in there. It's just what they've done is taken a lot of not, you know, like I say common but not often used techniques or things that you don't tend to do in day-to-day photography like high-speed photography uh, or tilt-shift work or that. And they've kind of collected some really good examples from across the web of great-looking images and then talk about the technique behind it. So it's just worth, you know, just thumbing through and it's kind of like, oh, I want to try that. It's something I haven't really done. It's just a unique uh, take on, on how you would do something a little bit differently. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's smashingmagazine.com and it's the uh, 50 photography techniques. Very cool. And Aaron Mailer, what's your, what's your pick? Ron's mention there just reminded me, too, that something I've been talking about wanting to do for a while. Um, I've got a couple of lens rentals coming up that I have to do for an event a little over a week from now. And uh, since I had that 10-day window where I was renting a lens for, for two shoots I've got to do that are a week apart, um, I finally also put in a rental for a tilt-shift lens, um, which I've been wanting to get my hands on for quite a while, and it'll be a good window of time for me to use it. So next couple of weeks, I will have some either horrible or hopefully good tilt-shift experiments to share with everybody and the experience. So just an aside. Anyway, my pick of the week um, this week is uh, the museum um, in Washington, D.C. Um, I travel to Washington quite a bit. It's few hours up the road from me and when I want to get away for day trips or whatever just to clear my head and change the scenery um, I take the train from here up to DC for a day and do various things anything from photography to museums to whatever and on my last trip up there I finally went by uh, a place called the museum uh, which is just about a block or so off the National Mall and uh, it, it's it's an enormous six-story or six-floor um, museum of news of the history of news and uh, I have to tell you the architecture is absolutely incredible the place is enormous to say the least um, plenty of, of plenty of hours of wandering about in there seeing uh, you know the entire history of news coverage and all but one particular thing I wanted to mention was on the very first floor when I came in the first thing I ended up wandering into was their uh, Pulitzer Prize photo exhibit Mm. which was fantastic. Um, um, it's every Pulitzer Prize photo that's ever been awarded, you know, essentially on display with discussions in history. Um, they have 15 different small theaters, large and small theaters, spread throughout the entire museum, you know, some of which are just the kind of automated uh, uh, little step-in, you know, few dozen seats, you know, covering a certain topic for the section of the museum you're in. And they have one there with the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, photographers being interviewed and talking about a lot of the images that you see on the walls you wander through there. And I have to say that was one of the most captivating parts of the entire museum when I was there. I only spent a few hours there and just kind of went through all six floors to get a feel for it. And I'll, I'll go see it again in the future. But um, it's a worthy trip. So I just recommend anybody who's near D.C., going to D.C., planning a trip to D.C. at some point, carve out a little bit of time, um, go see the, the museum. You know, you, you see what your sense of it is. The only thing that bothers me a little is that the entire place is pretty much paid for and sponsored by the various news organizations who are covered in it. So wow. there's some questions of objectivity there. But um, but that doesn't apply so terribly much to the Pulitzer Prize-winning photo section, which applies more to our discussions here in TWIP, and I think that's well worth seeing. Yeah. And they, apparently the museum has published a book of all the photos as well. It's available there in the bookstore. Very cool. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Sure. And my pick is uh, essentially related to the guest of today. It's a shoot cue. It's an online application for photographers to essentially handle the... It's kind of like if you're familiar with salesforce.com, it's one of those those systems that lets you handle your incoming leads, uh, depending on if you're... I think it, he said it works in the interview. He said it works specifically. It's geared towards wedding shooters uh, and portrait shooters, but they're they're 
architecting the application so that it'll be it'll be more applicable to other shooters as well. But essentially, on your site, it allows you to put some code that then people can enter in uh, their contact info and potentially schedule a date with you. But it also allows you to do a number of things in terms of uh, being able to invoice, accept payment, uh, have them digitally sign contracts, all that stuff that you normally do with a pen and paper and in front of your client you can all do it electron you can now do it electronically or through the web with their system i thought it was a pretty cool pretty cool little product that sort of brings old school the business of old school photography up a couple of notches towards the present it's really cool it's a web only application and uh the we'll get into it pretty deep with andrew neeson he's the the ceo and founder of the company shoot q and that's my pick of the week so for the photo assignment and the and the poll of the week, last week, what was it, Aaron? You want to give us the, the status of that? Uh, last week was the final week of the uh, current month project uh, or assignment. Uh, the topic was spring. And, uh, of course, we'll be choosing those photos here. We record toward the end of the week here and we release on Monday. So we'll be choosing the photos and announcing the winner on the blog. And uh, I have to mention, too, that uh, the requests for the information on who won Complex and Reflection have not fallen on deaf ears. We apologize for that not having been clearly announced. So in the process of putting out spring uh, winners, we're also going to try and cover all the stuff that we have missed and make a section on the blog uh, listing all those choices. So look for that first of this week, um, the answers to that. And uh, we have our new assignment coming up now, and the topic for the next four weeks, uh, this is one that Fred came up with, called Personal Space. And uh, I think you had a little background you wanted to offer there, too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I talked about this on the show uh, maybe a month or so ago. But the, uh, when, I was, when I was active duty in the military, going through training, we had this, this exercise where the instructors wanted us to invade other people's personal space in other words get over our the your your natural shyness to approaching people on the street to take their photograph so uh, they gave us the assignment of okay here's a 136 rule uh, or 36 exposure roll of, of slide film and here's a camera body and here's a 50 millimeter lens go out there and get at least 30 head and shoulder portraits of people, which meant, and these weren't zoom lenses, of course. So this meant that you needed to actually go approach somebody and have a quick conversation with them to get permission to take their photo and then take the photo and be competent about coming back with a decent exposure because it's slide film. So it was a, it was a great exercise in keeping your wits about you in terms of how to keep your, how to, how to invade the personal space and introduce yourself and talk to someone and let them know that you're a photographer and that this is what you're doing. Um, and then also coming back with an image because there's no, back then there was no raw. So there was no, oh, oops, this one is a little bit underexposed. Each image had to be perfect and it was judged on the, the execution of the assignment. So that relates to this, this photo assignment in that it's personal space. Now, we're not saying that you need to recreate that experience that I just described. We're saying that you need to go out and interpret the phrase personal space however you see fit. It could be the way I described, but interpret it how you see fit and uh, come back with some photos that speak to personal space. Trying to see how many TWIP listeners going to get beaten up in the next four weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't invade the wrong person's personal space. <laughs> yeah. So, and then uh, the new poll, you want to talk about the new poll? 
Sure. Um, our new poll this week, uh, the poll we've been running was just one focused on the blog, and you can see the results there. Um, a few thousand people have had a chance now to go through that and kind of give us a sense of what they want to see out of the blog. So we're moving on this week to a new poll that was submitted to me uh, via Twitter from a listener, uh, Rick Sedevec. I hope I have your name right there, Sedevec. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty concise little poll here. What form of computer system is behind your photo workflow? And uh, we're not talking Mac or PC here. We're talking laptop, desktop, or a combination of the two. Those seem like the three most sane answers. So uh, let us know. The poll will come up first the next week, and we'll run it for at least a week. And now let's get into that interview with Andrew Neeson. He's the CEO of ShootCube. I'm here with Andrew Neeson. He's the uh, the guy behind, or one of the guys behind ShootQ. It's a, a new service that's out there for photographers, solving a lot of the problems that photographers have in terms of just the stuff that happens on the back end. A lot, most photographers, myself included, want to be out taking pictures and not necessarily dealing with the nuts and bolts behind running a business and scheduling and and sending out contracts and hunting down payments. And Andrew and team have swung into action and put this the shoot queue service online that allows photographers to get back to the things they love doing most, and that's taking pictures. So, Andrew, thanks for uh, coming on this week in photography. Well, thanks for having me, Frederick. It's uh, good to talk to you. Yeah, this is this is a pleasure. I've been uh, excited about this since I had a conversation with Sarah France. We interviewed her for this week in photography sure. a couple weeks ago, and she was singing your praises. and uh, And I had a chance to poke around in there myself a little bit. And uh, I got to say, I'm pretty impressed with what you've done. And you know what? Doing my due diligence for this interview, I uh, you know was looking around for different competing services to shoot mm-hmm. you. And I wasn't able to find many, if any. So you guys sure. definitely are, are doing <laughs> well, something for, for the photographers. You want to talk a little bit about just what the, what the mindset behind ShootQ is and, and where you're going with it? Well, definitely, yeah. I, uh, about five years ago, um, my business partners and my wife and I, uh, who all work together, we were struggling to manage our studio. We realized that we had a lot of information we were trying to manage and it was generally disorganized and we were working from separate locations and we looked into some of the existing options but they were all desktop based and that wouldn't work for us because like I said we were working from several different locations so Mm -hmm. um, we looked into any web-based options that were available and there was none or nothing available at the time so um, my brother-in-law, who uh, at the time was a, uh, a software developer for a medical records company, um, told me to go and pick up a, a copy of a programming book uh, to write a web-based application that would run off a, um, a language called PHP and an online database. And so I you know, dove straight in, ran down to Barnes & Noble, picked up a book, started reading it, uh, did all the tutorials, learned the language, and, and started writing that. And um, about three years later, I decided, well, you know, if we're, uh, we, I had a pretty good app that was written. I decided if, uh, if we need something like this, then um, some you know, other photographers probably need this as well. So I uh, showed it to a couple of friends. They were sort of begging to be let in. So <laughs> made some changes to it, um, got it online for them. And uh, word started to spread really quickly, and uh, I realized that we were going to be in over our heads pretty soon. So we uh, actually hired my brother-in-law away from his job, where he was 
leading a team of developers to write medical record software, and it was all web-based medical record software. So he was the perfect person to put into the job to write Chukyu over again. And so um, we spent about a year and a half rewriting it. So the version we've got online now is a version that um, he and another developer spent a year and a half writing, and um, it's going pretty good. People are really liking it. So, so bas- basically, you found that you you were just like the the classic uh, entrepreneurial story. You build something that you feel like you need, and then suddenly people are coming out of the woodwork and claiming that they need it as well. Is that kind of what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, it was there to fill a need that we had, and um, as it turns out, a lot of other people had the same need. Wow. So then, so uh, what version are you in right now with ShootQ? Well, uh, the version that we uh, worked on with Jonathan and Ryan, our uh, professional developers, uh, was version 2.0. We launched that in January of 2009, this year. And uh, we, we don't really use numbered versions, but you know, I guess you could say we're on our, our second sub-release of ShootQ version 2, um, and we're about to come out with our third in a couple of weeks. Really? And anything that you can talk about publicly in terms of feature set? <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm a journalist, um, Andrew. Come on, I got to get this out of here. I know you are. Well, see, I went to journalism school, so I know exactly what you're trying to do. You know how to resist. Uh, <laughs> well, um, well, we've got a very strict policy about not talking too much about what we're uh, what we're working on. But, sure. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll give you a little hint here. It it, uh, it has to do with helping photographers get more work, which is something these days is uh, a really important thing. So uh, we've been working really hard on that. And uh, more to come, more to come on that. So then, you know, just sort of back back to the application itself and uh-huh. and its its sort of inception. What would you say is the the main problem that ShootQ solves for photographers? Well, the main problem that we were trying to solve when um, we started writing ShootQ was that we felt like information was managed by too many systems. You know, you had in, some information pictage about a shoot. You had some information in QuickBooks about a shoot. You had some information on your calendar. Um, and what we were trying to do is to bind all of those together with a hub, something in the middle of all of those other pieces of software that would connect the dots in a way that made it really easy and automatic to manage the information of your studio. Um, and I think that's been really, really key to growing our two photography studios that we've got um, to the size that they are now. And just for a little background information, um, my wife Rachel and I in 2002 started LaCour, which is an Atlanta-based um, wedding photography studio. And uh, then we also in 2004 started an associates brand we called The Decisive Moment. Mm-hmm. And The Decisive Moment has six contract photographers. And those six con- contract photographers cover about 80 weddings per year. So between LaCour and Decisive Moment, we've got about 100 weddings that we do a year. And that's a lot of work and a lot of clients to keep track of. And to consistent uh, consistent service to clients and decisive moment clients and to avoid getting people mixed up, we needed something that would keep us hyper-organized. And so, you know, those two photography studios were really sort of almost a research and development laboratory for ShootQ. Um, and I think that we couldn't have gotten to where we are now without an app like this. Wow. So you you're at you said between the two studios you're you're handling 80 events a year? Is that true? Uh well, 
yeah, it kind of depends on the year. But this year it looks like it's going to be about 180 for Decisive Moment and then about 20 for Liqueur. Wow. So. Okay, so then what? Take take shoot Q out of the mix for a second. Mm-hmm. How sure. would you how would you have been managing eighty to a hundred events a year with without <laughs> shoot Q in the mix? I'm not sure, uh, and and I don't want to uh, you know I don't want to plug shoot Q quite that hard because it's uh, you know but it really has I mean it is designed to help studios no matter what size you are you know you could be a, a studio shooting ten weddings a year. Um, with, you know, just one photographer working, you know, independently to, you know, we've got 12 different people on staff plus six photographers that uh, work as associates. So, you know, any studio, I think, can really benefit from the added organization, um, organizational uh, level that ShoeQ provides. And I think that, you know, especially in this economy right now, that's particularly important because, you know, um, Photographers need to scale back on expenses right now, and having shoot cue um, is, is almost as, as essential as having a camera because it allows you to be nimble and fast and responsive and consistent, and all of these things are really important right now when you've got this economic crisis that we're in. People are looking for stability and comfort, and by being in- incredibly organized, uh, you know, it allows you to provide that consistent experience for your customer that will, um, you know, make them feel really comfortable with you, make them feel at ease spending money with you, which is, you know, ultimately what we're trying to accomplish right now. Yeah, you want to you want to always look per- look and act professional, exactly, uh, and of course have the have the quality of the work behind it to back it up. So then, you know, uh, what about other photographers? I know. Uh, you know, speaking with your your team a little bit earlier today, mm-hmm. um, the, from the inception of Shoot Q, it was sort of designed specifically with the wedding shooter in mind. What sure. about what about everybody else? You know, so what what about the portrait <laughs> photographers and and the contract photographers and the freelance photographers and all those guys? What can they use Shoot Q, or or is it specifically targeted at that wedding genre? They can. Now, um, here's the thing is, that's a great point. We are wedding photographers and liqueur and decisive moments shoot strictly weddings. Now that said, um, one of the things that we feel like is a real asset is that we've got a lot of really good friends in the industry. And, you know, we've got a lot of people who are really well known in the portrait market, like Laura Novak, um, you know, um, that, that have been giving us, um, you know, a lot of, uh, feedback about shoot cues that, um, you know, is indispensable uh, mm-hmm. that allows us to understand how portrait photographers work. And so what we're doing is, you know, we're, we're really marketing right now primarily to wedding photographers, also to portrait photographers sort of as a, sec- sort of as a secondary market. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is very interesting. Um, videographers have almost exactly the same needs in terms of organization that photographers have. So we're also marketing to videographers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, our, our plans are eventually to move into some other areas, but we want to really, really hone in and focus, keep our tribe tight, if you will, and focus on the areas that we know really well and then bring in friends who know other areas to develop for other areas of photography. Absolutely. So, so right now, ShoeQ is designed for wedding and portrait photographers and videographers, and that's what we're focusing on right now. And in the future, we're hoping to add in other photography, you know, other genres of photography so that we can help commercial photographers perhaps or 
uh, editorial photographers and the like. Okay. So then I, I know also from checking out your site that you are doing some sort of giving back type efforts with, with a grant program. You want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, uh, our, our mission at CQ is to provide photographers the tools that they need to succeed in business so that they can have freedom to spend time working um, on the things that they love, which include, uh, you know, photography, um, spending time with their family, and giving back to the community. And so um, we hope to use ShoeQ and the income we make for ShoeQ um, to allow us to have ourselves to have the freedom to go out and work on personal projects. So like I mentioned earlier, uh, I've got a, a degree in journalism, as is my wife, Rachel. We met in journalism school at University of Missouri. And, you know, our real passion is for documentary storytelling photography. And so we really want to be able to pursue projects that, um, you know, are documentary in nature. And unfortunately, nobody out there has any money to give people to do these projects. Typically, you have to go after grants and that kind of thing. And right now, we're so focused on ShoeQ that we don't have a lot of time to do that personal work. But we decided that what we wanted to do was to allow photographers to give back to the community and pursue a project that they care about. Um, and the idea behind the ShoeQ grant is that we're making $10,000 available each year to a photographer who submits a proposal. And um, that photographer, uh, you know, the, the proposal will go in front of a, a panel of judges that we've selected. And they're all notable names in the photography industry. And also, some of them have backgrounds in journalism. And the, the purpose of this project is to um, you know, allow them to have the, um, the freedom and the time to go out and pursue a project that um, you know, has some aspect of social or you know, um, it it's, uh, goes to help a, a, you know, a charitable cause or um, you know, allows them to pursue a project that has, uh, you know, sort of philanthropic. Yeah, um, some, something that's giving aspect. back, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's the idea behind the ShootQ grant. And uh, so we've got a website set up for that. It's grants.shootq.com. And uh, people can check it out. I think the deadline this year is coming up pretty soon. It's, uh, I believe, May 1st. So. Excellent. Cool. So I'll, yeah. uh, I'll we'll definitely link to link over to your site and directly to the the shoot cue, shoot cue grant from you the uh, from the show notes on the site. Uh, but thanks a lot, Andrew. This is this has been very sure. very helpful, and uh, you know, congratulations on on putting a tool out there that photographers definitely need. And you know, I'm I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that we'll see other features in there for <laughs> for those other genres of photographers because you know the TWIP audience is going to be looking at this, and they're they're from all walks of That's photographic right. life. That's right. so. Well, we're continuing to develop all the time. We've got two developers working constantly, and we release. Uh, about six to eight times a year, we release new features. So Excellent. keep your eyes peeled and, uh, you know, stop on by and we'll, we'll have new stuff coming out for all kinds of people. Great. So, okay. Well, thanks a lot, yeah. Andrew. Okay. Thanks, Frederick. Very cool. And let's move on to listener questions. Uh, the first one I want to throw over to Ron. It's from uh, Jeff Cleveland. Ron, you want to take this one? Sure. Jeff says, when exporting photos from Aperture, I'm not clear what effect the DPI, Gamma Adjust, and Color Sync profile selections will have on the exported images. Can you offer some explanation? Uh, yeah, I just, you know, taking it from the top, DPI, 
<laughs> I, I have a problem with DPI generally because people people sort of think that it means what's the resolution I'm going out, and it doesn't. DPI is just sort of a tag that gets added to a photo that tells other applications how to display it. So you know, it, it's sort of a hint to your printer that if you didn't tell the printer anything to override that, it would sort of tell it how to print um, uh, the image that's coming off of that. But the thing is, these days, you know, there's so many other ways to look at an image, or there's so many ways to control how you're looking at an image that really the DPI is something I don't even really think about setting whenever I export from Aperture. Um, profile is, we've talked about that one a lot, and this is just sort of color information, sort of d d tagging how the colors that are stored in this digital file will be displayed on other devices. In some ways, it's kind of like uh, DPI in the sense that it's mostly a tag to translate what's in the in the photo for the display device. Uh, that is something you want to make sure you get right, but you know, depending on if you're going to the web or going to a printer, you kind of just need to know what, what you need to do there. Um, and then the gamma thing is it's a weirdity inside of Aperture in that it has this extra slider that you can export that's labeled as gamma, um, and it, it really is exactly the same algorithm as the brightness control and the Bain adjustments. So it's just an overriding thing if you know if you're doing a batch export and for whatever reason you don't have a good color workflow set up uh, and you're, you're you just want to tweak everything so it's just a little bit brighter you can use that gamma slider there mm -hmm. um, yeah you know for the most part if you've got a well-defined workflow you should have things set up so you don't have to turn that override on that's that's more of just a well i can't figure out how to do it right so i'm just going to go manually adjust this last step <laughs> so hopefully you're not using that because you've got everything else working properly Excellent. And Aaron Mailer, there's a question in here with your name on it. You want to? I think it's the one from Jared Christian. On yes. Um, this uh, <clears throat> this is just going to be a personal answer to the question, actually. Um, but uh, Jared's question was: Are there any one particular photography magazine out there that you guys would agree on to be the best to subscribe to? If I wanted to learn even more about photography, um, you know, I've been through a couple of magazines over the years. Um, I have to admit that I'm so much more web and net oriented these days that and you know, the flow of information there is so much more personal uh, and so fast that that's where I spend most of my time. But I do maintain one subscription to a magazine, and that is uh, Outdoor Photographer. And I've just always enjoyed that magazine a lot. I think it has some really good information in it, uh, certainly some beautiful photography. So, uh, you know, just, again, I, I can't necessarily speak to the best magazine out there, and, and I would actually turn this around to the listeners and uh, ask for some discussion to begin in the forums on twiplog.com about this uh, to answer Jared's question. But just from a personal standpoint, the one I have maintained over the few that I've had and dropped over the years was Outdoor Photographer. Very cool. All yeah, right. I don't... Magazines are dead, aren't they? No, they are not <laughs> dead. <laughs> and then here comes the hate mail. That would be Ron Brinkman. <laughs> With two ends on Twitter. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, well, you know, I mean, part of the problem is, okay, a lot of these magazines that we used to subscribe to were sort of where we got our, our gear information, right? And that's clearly kind of useless to get a magazine that's got a, a, a two, three-month publishing lead time to tell you about what the latest equipment is coming out on that. But, yeah, I, there are some magazines that I pick up occasionally that are very focused on technique, and those are, those are nice to have paper versions of once in a while. And uh, but again, a lot. So much of it's available on the web too. It's sort of where do you where do you want to get your information from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I tend to agree with that. It's uh, I don't know. No, I'm gonna leave it at that. So what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving it right there. Um, there's a there's a question in here for me 
that uh, is, is it's from Adam Halty, and it's a deep question. He wants to know. He wants advice on choosing between Adobe Photoshop Lightroom and Apple's Aperture application. Um, and essentially, in his question, he says, you know, because I know both of the applications and I have experience with both companies, uh, he wants my take on it. And I'm not going to answer that in on this show right now because it's a, it's a longer answer than just use Lightroom or use Aperture. The, the quick answer is it depends. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a, and as he mentioned in here, he was asking, is there a blog post somewhere on this? I think this merits a blog post and a deeper sort of discussion in a permanent, you know, not that a podcast isn't permanent, but something that's l- more linkable to. Uh, because it's an important question, and I got this multiple times over the last couple of days in Yellowstone from different people because uh, they know my background in Lightroom, wondering what the differences were between the applications. So I think it, to better serve this, I'll take this offline and direct folks over to twiplog.com, and I'll uh, post something up there within the next week uh, about the differences between the two applications. Yeah, I mean, the cool thing is you can get evaluations on both of them, right? So mm-hmm. at some level, yep. yeah, you just got to go through emails. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's no different than the question of should I be shooting Canon or Nikon, right? Mm-hmm. There is yeah. no answer. Yep. So, and you can go back and forth with a lot of little stuff, but man, you just really got to, you know, figure out your own workflow as part of what's going on there. Yeah, and, and the, what I was telling folks at the workshop is what you said is exactly right, Ron. Uh, people, you know, don't get mired and don't get tangled up in uh, I need to have this this and this because you know my favorite photographer uses this stuff and therefore it is law you know there are the the fact that photography in and of itself is an art that means there are no rules in you know aside from the rules and laws of physics that <laughs> that say that you should use anything over something else you know 90% or more of this stuff, including the hardware that you choose, the software that you choose to use, the subject matter that speaks to you, all this stuff is subjective. You know, it's what what works best for you, and, and that may not necessarily be what works best for the next person. So, and and you know, the, and the thing is, you got There's so many things to consider that you might not think about offhand. Uh, you know, you may be very focused on technical issues, but there's really valid reasons to say I'm going to get. Aperture because you know my best friend is an Aperture user and that's going to be an incredible resource for me to yeah. just be able to call up and and I I think that is absolutely as valid a reason to get it as you know as anything anything else same thing for cameras right I know you know when when my ex girlfriend was looking for a camera and you know it's like well I'd say you should probably get a Canon because then you can borrow lenses for me right and yeah. It, it, those are re- you know, valid reasons to get it. So I think you just need to consider all of those things. Now that she's your ex-girlfriend, do you still let her borrow lenses? <laughs> no, so no. <laughs> I'm just so asking. She has no access to those lenses. She should have bought Nikon. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Sorry about that, Ron. But if there are any other you know, cute single women out there that want to borrow some lenses, they can feel free to get in touch with me. Ron Brinkman with two N's on Twitter. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, this, this is my entire goal for doing a podcast is just to meet women. So. Uh, I'm going to start talking like Dr. Feel in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's, where, that's bringing us to an end of the show here. Yeah. Um, so does anyone have any tips of the week that they want to throw out there? 
Hey, you're back from Yellowstone. I think you're better armed than the rest of us. All right. My tip of the week in that case, and we, we sort of foreshadowed this in the beginning a little bit, is uh, look at your camera and see if you have any any ability to preset it into for certain shooting situations and then do that so that you can always be ready with your camera. Barring that, if, you, if you, your camera doesn't allow you to do that, just make sure that if there is a chance that something will come up that you want to photograph, that your camera is out of the bag and nearby and ready to go. You know, if you're if you're in some place like like Yellowstone or some national park or in some you're driving through a strange city or something, put your camera somewhere where you can grab it and make sure it's on and ready to click so that you can grab that shot really quickly because you never know this might be the uh, the you know, the bison butting head shot that I probably missed. Um, so that would be that would be my tip. Always be ready. Be prepared. I think I think it's a really you know I, I wanted to add just a little bit to that is you know we do have this sort you were talking about this kind of snobbery of you're not a real photographer unless you shoot in in pure manual mode, but I know I started getting to this thing where there's the the kind of auto sections of my camera the uh, the little running guy picture and the little mountain picture that are just sort of the presets and uh, there's nothing wrong with going into that really fast too. It's often just a dial click away. And if you just know you need something right away, and it's it's a very fast moving thing, sometimes just switching over to that, even though it's less, you know, it's more of a canned setting. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it if it's going to get you your shot. Yep, that's it. All right, and I think that'll that'll bring us to a close. Aaron Mailer, where can where can people find you? Uh, <clears throat> you can find me at my uh, my rather slow blog at the moment, uh, halfpress.com, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S.com. Painfully need some updates, and uh, also on the Twitters as halfpress. All right. And Ron Brinkman? Twitter, Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. And only only send him a message if you're a lovely lady, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking to borrow a lens. <laughs> Look, looking for love. <laughs> and for me, uh, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me on my blog at frederickvan.com. That's my home on the web. Or on Twitter at uh, frederickvan. And that brings us to a close. It's time to take that lens cap off. Oh,